industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. I'm going to introduce Dr. Marlies Gnerka, who is a first-year fellow in medical toxicology at the NYU Bellevue New York City Poison Center. She loves animals and all intersections of toxicology with the animal world. If she had to pick one animal to be in her next life, it would be a sea lion. So the topic of domoic acid poisoning is near and dear to her heart and brain. And with that, please take it away. Thank you for that introduction, Adam. Uh, last year, my co-fellow Josh Bloom gave a toxic history presentation entitled Birds, Brains, and Berry Berry. So I will be continuing the Bellevue tradition and will also be talking about birds and brains, but as they relate to a different toxin. So let's begin. It's August 1961. East German authorities have just closed the border between East and West Berlin and started construction on the Berlin Wall. In a small coastal town just south of Santa Cruz, something dramatic was also about to happen. In the words of the local newspaper, residents were awakened about 3 a.m. today by the rain of birds slamming against their homes. Dead and stunned seabirds littered the streets and roads in the foggy early dawn. Startled by the invasion, residents rushed out onto their lawns with flashlights, then rushed back inside as the birds flew towards their light. When the light of day made the area visible, residents found the streets covered with birds. The birds disgorged bits of fish and fish skeletons over the streets and lawns and housetops, leaving an overpowering fishy stench. Here we see the deputy sheriff amongst floundering birds and regurgitated anchovies, trying to solve the mystery. The best explanation for this disturbing event at the time was offered by a local museum zoologist, who suggested that the birds got confused and lost in the fog and headed towards the light of the town. The Bay Area is known for impressive fog. San Francisco has even named theirs Carl. But still, fog rolls in all the time, and this bird invasion was very out of the ordinary. Was it something else? Something more sinister? Just a few miles inland of the attack, Alfred Hitchcock had a residence in the Santa Cruz Mountains. In a few days after the initial article detailing the seabird invasion, the Santa Cruz Sentinel reported that Hitchcock called to request a copy of the paper to be mailed to him in Hollywood, where he was preparing an upcoming film, The Birds. For those who haven't seen it, The Birds is a natural horror thriller film depicting a series of sudden and unexplained violent bird attacks on the residents of Bodega Bay, California, over the course of a few days. Despite its obvious publicity benefits for his new picture, Hitchcock denied having anything to do with a feathery invasion of Capitola. Merely a coincidence, Hitchcock purred knowingly. Two years later, The Birds was released. It received mixed reviews. Many of the negative reviews criticized the lack of explanation for the attack. To quote from a Time magazine review, why did the birds go to war? Hitchcock does not tell, and the movie flaps to a plotless end. Whether the lack of a clear explanation is a cinematographic pro or con is up for debate, but it certainly mirrored the unsettling reality. What had happened in Capitola and why? Fast forward to 1987 and Northeast to Canada. On November 22nd, two patients in New Brunswick were hospitalized with gastroenteritis and confusion. Just two days later, health authorities in Montreal received reports of two similar cases. Careful history taking revealed that all of these patients had consumed mussels within the last day. Blue mussels from Prince Edward Island specifically. One of the first considerations was paralytic shellfish poisoning, which was known to occur in the region. The way they tested for this was a mouse bioassay, performed by injecting muscle extract into mice intraperitoneally and seeing whether mice live or die. 
Mice injected with muscle extract from muscles associated with these new cases did die, but before they did, they exhibited some unusual symptoms. They began involuntarily scratching their shoulders with their hind legs, followed by progressively uncoordinated movements until they fell over and died. Muscle distribution from the island was halted and advisories were sent out not to consume muscles that had been recently distributed. Eventually, the entire Northeast shellfish industry was shut down. So something was clearly wrong with these muscles, but what? First, chemists tested for everything they could think of, other marine toxins, heavy metals, pesticides. Once they had ruled out everything they could think of, they had to identify the unknown. Just 107 hours later, they had an answer. Using various fractionation techniques and spectroscopy analyses, they whittled away at the chemical identity of this mystery toxin. Structural and spectral information was checked against chemical registries as they went, and they had actually already narrowed it down to a handful of possible formulas when the chemical registry spit out a match, domoic acid. So the culprit wasn't actually an unknown. It had been originally isolated 30 years earlier by Japanese scientists in Osaka. Scientists were interested in the chemical constituents of a native red algae called Chondria armata due to historical use by local inhabitants as an anti-helminthic agent. They found that the chemical properties of this seaweed extract were reminiscent of those of another red algae, Digenia simplex, isolated a few years earlier. This other extract was named canic acid, which translates to monster of the sea in Japanese. The structure of the new compound was identified and named domoic acid after the Japanese name for the seaweed, domoi. And indeed, patients with Ascaris infection treated with 20 milligrams of domoic acid were found to be worm-free by stool and x-ray examination. Subsequent studies demonstrated insecticidal and neuroexcitatory activity in cockroaches and houseflies as well as mammalian neurotoxicity leading to seizures in rats. So what's the deal with the seaweed sea monster toxicity? Let's take a look at their structures. Here we have canic acid on the left and domoic acid on the right. As you can see, they look pretty similar. Domoic acid is basically canic acid with a tail. In fact, there's something else they resemble. This third structure on the top is glutamic acid. If you open up that ring, the resemblance becomes clear. So domoic and canic acids are glutamic acid analogs. If you deprotonate glutamic acid, you get glutamate, which we know is the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the CNS. It's essential for things like memory, learning, and attention. But as we know all too well in toxicology, too much of a good thing can be bad. And this is one of those examples. Glutamate binds to a variety of receptors eight so-called metabotropic receptors, which are G-protein-coupled receptors, and three so-called inotropic receptors, which are ligand-gated ion channels, NMDA, AMPA, and canate, named after its affinity for our monstrous seaweed friend. Due to structural similarity, domoic acid can bind and activate canic acid and AMPA receptors. This leads to vesicular release of actual glutamate into the synapse, which then activates the other glutamate receptors. The same simulation leads to an inability to maintain intracellular homeostasis and osmotic damage, and an influx of calcium triggers a cascade of events mediating cell injury and death. The hippocampus is particularly sensitive to this excitotoxicity due to the high concentration of canic acid receptors there. 
So domoic acid excitotoxicity leads to neuronal loss and astrocytosis in the hippocampus, as well as other limbic structures. As we know, the hippocampus plays a vital role in memory. Hippocampus comes from the ancient Greek words hippos for horse and campos for sea monster. In other words, domoic acid binds Japanese sea monster receptors in the Greek sea monster. It's pretty poetic. Of note, glutamic acid also has seaweed ties. A few decades earlier in 1908, a Japanese scientist was searching for the substance that made dashi, a seaweed containing Japanese broth, so pleasantly savory. He isolated glutamic acid as the substance giving that taste, now known as umami. Glutamate stimulates amino acid and metabotropic glutamate receptors in taste buds to induce the flavor of umami. After playing around with a few different salts of glutamate, he found that monosodium glutamate was the most palatable and patented, MSG. Does MSG, when ingested, cause toxicity? This could really be a webinar topic of its own, but it's worth a brief tangent. It all started with a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968, written by a Dr. Ho Man Kwok. He described symptoms of numbness in his back and arms, generalized weakness and palpitations after eating out at Chinese restaurants, and speculated whether it might be due to MSG used for seasoning. The letter sparked a lot of interest. Responses described other anecdotal experiences and possibly questionable taste test studies. The concerns spread from the medical literature to popular media, and the public grew wary. Chinese restaurants started displaying signs that they didn't use MSG, and MSG was removed from baby food. In the 90s, the FDA asked an independent scientific group to examine the safety of MSG. The report found that a subset of sensitive individuals developed mild and transient symptoms with ingestion of more than three grams of MSG in the absence of food. But this is much more than is encountered in typical meals, and almost no one is encountering MSG in the absence of food. So the FDA considers MSG generally recognized as safe. Many have tied the MSG panic to xenophobia and racism against Chinese culture. MSG is not only found in Chinese food. We already know that it's found naturally in dashi, which is Japanese, and it's also found in many foods outside of East Asia, mushrooms, tomatoes, and aged cheese. It's also an additive in many distinctly American foods, Doritos and Pringles, which no one seemed to have weird reactions to. The controversy took a strange twist when someone came forward admitting that the original letter to the editor had been written as a hoax, but then came out that that admission may have also been a hoax. It's all very bizarre. In January 2020, a campaign called Redefine CRS was launched, calling on Merriam-Webster to change their dictionary entry. And they were successful. Here is the new dictionary entry. So a lot to unpack with seaweed, and we aren't done yet. To sum up, we have three seaweeds containing three glutamate receptor activating compounds. One is delicious, and one, domoic acid, has just been identified as the mystery toxin causing a new mystery syndrome following shellfish ingestion. How did the domoic acid get into the muscles? Muscles are filter feeders and their major source of food is seaweed. Actual marine biologists would use the word phytoplankton, which are basically little drifting organisms capable of photosynthesis. For our purposes, little seaweed bits. The red algae from which domoic acid had originally been isolated is only found in the Indian and Pacific oceans, but investigation revealed an intense bloom of a particular phytoplankton called Nichia pungens in Prince Edward Island waters just before the outbreak. And sure enough, when injected into mice, 
these phytoplankton cause the terrible itching death response. This phytoplankton has since been renamed Pseudonychia. When it was all said and done, 107 patients met the newly established case definition of domoic acid poisoning, GI symptoms within 24 hours of eating a muscle, or confusion, loss of memory, disorientation, seizures, or coma within 48 hours of eating muscles. Almost a quarter reported loss of memory, predominantly short-term. This last symptom gave rise to a new name for this poisoning, amnestic shellfish poisoning. Some other unsettling symptoms reported in the most critically ill patients included coma, mutism, seizures, purposeless chewing and grimacing, hiccups, emotional lability with uncontrolled crying or aggression, and profuse secretions. Several patients died, and autopsy showed neuronal necrosis or cell loss and astrocytosis most prominent in the hippocampus and amygdaloid nucleus. Once the toxin and vector had been identified, muscles and other shellfish could be tested and safe consumption could resume. Life could go on. But the sea monster didn't rest for long. Over the next few years, pelicans and sea lions were found sick and dying along the coast of California, right back in Santa Cruz, in fact. Their symptoms were reminiscent of those seen in the unfortunate bioassay lab mice and the patient zero Canadians. Pelicans were described to display a characteristic slow side-to-side -side head motion, tremors, and uncoordinated flying due to attempts to scratch their pouch while flying. They would eventually lose awareness of their surroundings, fall over, and lie on their back, slowly paddling their feet until they died. Sea lions displayed head waving, ataxia, profuse secretions, and seizures. Here is a sea lion getting an EEG. In both of these cases, the vector was actually not shellfish, but anchovies, which pelicans and sea lions have been feasting on since way before tinned fish became artisanal. Whether muscle or anchovy, the idea is the same. Domoic acid from phytoplankton bioaccumulates up the food chain. Wait, wait, wait. Did someone say crazy birds in Santa Cruz area? The 91 pelican incident felt a little too familiar, and a few years later, a local marine biologist speculated that domoic acid might have been responsible for the 1961 Capitola attack. It made a lot of sense, but could they prove it? Unfortunately, there were no preserved bird carcasses from 30 years ago to inject into mice, but there was something else. A program originally established in 1949 to investigate the collapse of the sardine fishery had since morphed into a long-term marine ecosystem research program. And one way they collected data was by performing so-called plankton tows, basically pulling mesh nets through the water at various offshore stations shown here and archiving the collected zooplankton. What exactly is a zooplankton? They are the animal version of phytoplankton, which if you recall was essentially microscopic seaweed. Apparently, plankton just describes an organism that can't propel itself. So interestingly, zooplankton include everything from single-celled protozoans, these midi shrimp-like cuties, and even jellyfish. Zooplankton are animals because they can't feed themselves by photosynthesis like phytoplankton can. So they have to eat phytoplankton or other animals. One particular zooplankton called a selp provides an especially good snapshot of marine flora because they are non-selective filter feeders. Here is a selp. To quote something I saw when I Googled, what is a selp? It is the love child of a jellyfish and a slug. And I really couldn't agree more. In fact, selps are actually more closely related to humans than jellyfish because they have complex nervous, circulatory, and digestive systems, including a brain, a heart, and intestines. 
and even a very creepy little eye. So the marine biology team was able to analyze the gut contents of salps and other zooplankton collected around Santa Cruz in 1961 to reconstruct the regional flora present at that time. And indeed, as I published in 2011, toxin-producing species of Pseudonychia accounted for 79% of the phytoplankton present in the guts of these organisms. From this, the authors conclude that Pseudonychia and domoic acid were indeed most likely responsible for the strange behavior of the birds in August 1961, which led Hitchcock to make his film. With time, the film's reputation improved among critics, and it's now considered by many to be the last great Hitchcock movie. Film buffs in the audience might ask, but wasn't Hitchcock's film based on a book? It was indeed based on a story by Daphne du Maurier set in her home county of Cornwall, England. And the inspiration for her story was supposedly the sight of a farmer being attacked by a flock of gulls as he plowed a field one day. Now, I don't think anyone has investigated the contents of British zooplankton bellies from the 1950s yet, but I will end with a picture of Cornwall on the map. It's seaside. With that, I too will flap to an end. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of birds, brains, cinema, and marine toxicology. Since the original outbreak in Canada, monitoring programs have prevented further major outbreaks in humans, so you can leave this talk feeling relatively safe eating commercial mussels. But animals remain at risk. Harmful algae blooms are already increasing in frequency and will likely continue to do so as climate change progresses. Thanks for listening.